I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. So one of my favorite things to do in New York when they did have a physical space was to go into the village and go into the Morrison Hotel, uh, that great that great photo gallery. Yeah, well, there it's in Tribeca now. Well, they have they yeah, moved to Tribeca. Yeah, I didn't it's up a flight of stairs, but Tribeca is grim for me. Yeah, no, no, I, mean, I Soho even more so. They're, have, no, they're in Soho. I said, yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't realize they had a physical space. Yeah, so, yeah. So I used to go in there, and this for years, it would be one of the stops that I would go, and uh, I would be admiring the work of uh, of Chris Stein each time I went in, and I didn't really even realize how much of his work I was admiring until I looked through his most recent book, which is called Point of View: Me, New York City, and the Punk Scene. Uh, all of you know that Chris is the co-founder and bassist guitarist of the of the band Blondie. He's also the producer and performer for the classic soundtrack of the hip-hop film Wild Style and writer of the soundtrack for the film Union City. Um, Chris started taking photographs in 1968. During his last years at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, he began hanging around the early downtown rock scene, which we're going to talk a little bit about uh, today, and taking rock portraits. Um, Chris, welcome to The Living Life. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here at the book fair. Um, tonight we're presenting 
uh, your co cohort Debbie Harry uh, with her autobiography Face It, and uh, this gives me just a great opportunity to talk to you about uh, about this other aspect of your work, which is the photog the photographic aspect. How did you get started doing it? Uh, I just you know I was always screwing around with little cameras when I was a kid and brownie cameras and taking pictures of toys and there was there was a moment i took cameras into the the spook rides in coney island and that was that was a high point for me and i i wish i had some really great pictures of the creatures things whatever you want to call them that were you know a foot in the spook rides i wish i could dig some of them out but stuff gets lost and then a little bit later you know when i was involved in early aspects of the music scene and pop culture, I started hanging out with this kid in Brooklyn, Dennis McGuire, who was a really great photographer, and was he was always on the periphery of the Warhol scene. Um, he was a big inspiration. So that was about 68, and then I started seriously schlepping an actual camera around after that. Talk about how your family had an influence on you. In well, my mom days. was a painter, so I, I grew up with the artistic bent, as it were. And uh, she was great. I wish I had more of her stuff, but you know, you know, uh, life is about loss. So my stuff gets lost, you know. But, but so you felt encouraged, and you felt yeah. She was always very supportive, and in later years, she was super supportive of the band situation. And and what so you you spent most of your life in, not most, but you spent a lot of your life in Brooklyn. What then made you make that move to Manhattan? It was just the allure of the city at the time. And I was always going back and forth when I was a kid. Um, I, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, I would hang out on McDougal Street in that whole milieu. And sure. I jammed at the Night Owl and uh, you know, I used to see Hendrix wandering around, but I never saw him. I only ever saw him the one time at Woodstock. But and Richie Havens was always out on the streets, and uh, just that whole scene, you know, folk coming out of the folk scene. I was a folky also. And as legend has it, your parents bought you your first guitar. Yeah, parents it? bought me first electric, which was electric guitar, Harmony Rocket. Which you can find on eBay for about three hundred bucks, which probably only cost about <laughs> fifty at the time. And, and what was that first band that you were in like? I be, was you it know, we, like a high of, school band. And, no, just me and my buddies from the neighborhood. Yeah, some of them were, might have been from school, and the, you know, famously we wound up opening up for the Velvet Underground. That was a little later in 1967. Wow. So it's just another story. Well, there's a lot of stories. A lot here. of stories, yeah. A lot of stories. But what I what I love about this book and what I love what you did is it's a book about uh, everyday people, everyday life. It's a book about the commonality that we all felt in that New York of that time. Yeah. Wasn't it? A, it was such a different New York. Yeah, well, I, you know, the kid we have this kid driving us around and he's just a kid and he was you know hey, i'd like to go to new york is it crowded and i was telling him you know it's not uh it's a lot less crowded than the 70s and 80s 60s 70s certainly than it is now you know. well there was also a certain grittiness to it yeah that, all that stuff that you bring to it in a way that people today wouldn't recognize right 
to a certain extent, you know, they did a good do good job of portraying things in the Deuce TV show and saw that at all. You know, we, well, I remember, I remember in the seventies and early seventies, I had a cousin who was um, kind of uh, squatting in Union Square, in a building mm -hmm. around Union yeah. Square. And um, Union Square is filled with junkies and yeah. street people and all of that. And he was once quoted when it started getting gentrified. He was once quoted as saying, "You know, I kind of liked it better when the drug dealers were all around." Well, yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like Times time, time Square much better with the junkies and hookers for sure than Elmo and all that crap yeah. and M and M's. You know, it's appalling. But what are you going to do? You know, it's. it's uh, um, I had a, in like 1965 or something, my friend's older sister had a apartment on the Lower East Side that cost $24 a month. Right. For, you know, one room to the tub in the kitchen, you know, people are kind of aghast at that nowadays. So, so you know, um, I, I, we're about the same age. I'm probably just a couple years younger than you are. And I looked at you from Miami Beach is where I grew up. And I couldn't imagine being where you were at the forefront of what was going on at the time. Explain what life was like a little bit like. Uh, it was, you know, I was just really lucky that I was, I've always had this kind of zealot position of being in the right place at the right time. I said, you know, I went to San Francisco in 67 and 68 in the summer and I was at Woodstock and Debbie was at Woodstock also. We didn't know each other. So I was just always in the in this moment that was kind of in the fore, I guess. And then I just gravitated to the downtown music scene. I started seeing, you know, media about it when I was in art school at Visual Arts, and I just fell into the whole environment, which was pretty small and limited and incestuous at the time. Right. Well, there were the there, there were the clubs that everybody hung out in. Yeah, but and, it, was, and, it was you know it was Max's and Mercer Art Center and, and CBGB. CBGB was a little, little bit later, but right. initially it was it was limited. Well, I think Max's was the first one that I remember when I would yeah. go there. And yeah, Max's was well, Max's was going since the sixties. Yeah, and one of the albums that I remember buying as a was uh, you know live at you know Velvet Underground live yeah. at Max's. Yeah, yeah. great album. Yeah. You may be you may be on it. If I'm not yeah, sorry. yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Well, we, my, me, and my friends opened up for them at a place called the Gymnasium, uh -huh. which is and re recently over the last few years, there's recordings of them there are available. Now they did like a residency at this old, you know, Eastern European hall uptown. Was it? And, and tell me because I think it ties in with your photography. Was it something unique about New York that allowed this music scene to develop there, of all places? I, yeah, you know, uh, the incestuousness partially, because everybody just fed off each other, and it was it was also very isolated. People don't get to appreciate that now because of the connectivity with the fucking media right. situation that we're in now. But it was really cut off from everything, so the whole thing got to ferment onto itself and there you know the liverpool scene and san francisco scene and all these there were other similar moments i think you know well there was the ability to have an underground in a sense yeah. 
Yeah. Where people could, it wasn't co-opted as quickly as it no, is. No, no. We were going for four or five years before we got any attention. Right, right. And the dolls went out into the world and failed. So everybody figured, oh, okay, whatever. We're just going to keep stick to it. And there was no uh, crazy ambition at that point. It was just- But growing up as you did in the folk scene and and going through as you did, as so many of us did, you know, the, the intensity of the 60s was, you know, and then the, the intense commercialization that happened yeah. in the music scene. Was there a consciousness, a conscious effort to sort of a, a big fuck you to all that in a sense? Well, there was, there was a, just a musical backlash against all the, what had really become MOR, you know, and people don't really use that middle of the road. Right terminology anymore but you know everything was dominated by this real musicality and you know linda ronstadt and the eagles and all this stuff was what was uh dominating the charts so there was a conscious conscious push against that stuff i think well also since we're at a book fair there's also a very literary uh connection in your book of photographs sorry about my no that's i like twitter everybody should follow me on twitter though (laughs) what is your what is your twitter handle Uh, it's just my christine plays (laughs) but it's easy to find are your photographs on instagram as well yeah i do we have more instagram followers than twitter followers oh that's great twitter is reserved for complaining about politics mostly at this point well that's what we're yeah we're in that night right now yeah i'm yeah. surprised anyone's on the street given what's going on now yeah well but but i know there are two things that struck me about the book you know clearly you know there's andy warhol there's all these others but i love the photograph of lester bangs yeah yeah that's one of on my, coney island well i gave a big print of this to john stewart and he got really excited and he said oh my father Lived in this apartment, oh, building, really? which is in the background. My wife could have lived there. Yeah. Too. Is that Trump Village? I think? Uh, no, that's further, further out, somewhere. out. Yeah, um, but but Lester looks like he's having a lot of fun there. He looks he looks very confident and uncomfortable at the same time. <laughs> that's true. And yeah, he was you know he was a great character. Was he a good friend of yours? No, not we weren't super close, but but you know we dealt with him. <laughs> was he covering you at this point? This was, was an outtake from the one of the Fumetti's from the punk magazine. Oh, right. Things. Right. This was from that moment. And this girl is uh, was in a band called the Slander Band, and she that's uh, she's Jesse Blue. Jesse right? Blue, right? Jesse, right? Yeah, right. She's gone. And I love that the, the girl in the bikini is uh, yeah, Frankie the Shark Woman. Yeah, Legs McNeil <laughs> said he went out with her, but I, that was only, the only information I could get was Frankie the Shark Woman. It. Yeah. It's a great photograph. And I love the little boys. Yeah, those the the civilians. Camera. Yeah, no, they're terrific. And then, of course, I have to ask you about the whole William Burroughs connection as well. Well, we I probably uh, – I'm sure we met Burroughs through Victor Bacris, who we – did an earlier book with he's a writer and you know man about town and he was you know he's a biographer he biographer a yeah he's yeah and i think he's down here i think he lives in florida does he now live yeah in florida? i think so yeah oh, i didn't know that and he you know there's a period when he was hooking everybody up with burrows and bringing jagger and this one and that one to meet him and Did you go out to Kansas to meet him? No, we first met him in New, in New York, York and the bunker. And then later when we were on tour, we went to see him 
at what was called the Stone House, which was this old mill sort of place that he lived in. And then later I, got, I went and stayed with him in, in Lawrence and in Townmore. Well, know, you have these great photographs of his yeah, bookshelf I just, and of his uh, typewriter, which really appeals to me as well. I am very thankful I got to hang out with him. Yeah, what what was your impression of him? He was just a sweet guy. Yeah, you know, he was, he was super down to earth, and the, you know, he was friends with all the neighbors on his block, and who were just really normal, average people, and they just all. You know, there wasn't much of a there was there was no conflict. He was just considered they knew who he was, but if he fit in, yeah. Well, that whole period, that whole group of uh, Burroughs and Ginsburg, who yeah. I guess was still in New York at the time. Yeah, I met him a couple of times. I met Brian Geisen once. Uh, Debbie knew a couple of those guys. Great, she knew Corso. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I once saw this amazing reading with Ginsburg and Corso where they were doing dueling poems. Yeah, <laughs> rap battle, really rap battle, really, nice. really, really great. But, and these photographs of Debbie, I mean, I think your work has created these iconic images of her in so many ways. When did you start photographing her? Was well, it a right conscious away, she decision? was just very striking. No, I mean, she was just so gorgeous. It was, you know, wasn't kind of a no-brainer thing. Um, you know, people saw a lot of these images in some of the rap magazines before they heard the music, even. Yeah, I love this. You have one of a, a real close-up of her on the streets of New York with an old, uh, looks like a Pontiac in the in the background there. It's really a beautiful photograph. Most of this book is in black and white. Is, do you like working more in black and white than color? I, some my, of it's in I, color. My Instagram is all black and white for cohesiveness at this point. I mean, unless I frequently will change a color shot into black and white just so it's kind of, it kind of fits in a little better. But um, I shot at least, you know, maybe a quarter color back in those days. And was, this is your second book of photographs, yeah. right? I yeah, think there's more color in the first one. Rizzoli did a, an yeah. original one. The first one is a little more flamboyant and has yeah. all, the, all the music people in it. But the other thing that I really love about this is your voice, the voice that you you write you write throughout it. And there's something at the end that really struck me. I mean, it goes to a little bit about what we were talking about. It's the afterward, but it you express a little bit about the New York of today and what 9-11 meant. Would you mind reading a little bit of it? Oh, or, I, yeah, I can't remember it. Here, it's right here. The whole thing. If you could just, you could just read the it? afterward, I okay. would love that. Oh, Barbara and, I, Barbara and I got married in 1999 and moved into my loft on Greenwich Street in Tribeca. In September 2001, we had just returned from our second trip to Burning Man. We'd been back for about five days. Barbara had this big old dog and I had just come back from walking him around the block in the morning. There was always the sound of planes, but I heard a really loud airplane engine followed by a muffled boom. It's a true story. Within a few minutes, the phone started ringing. Turn on the TV. We went out to the street and saw the huge hole in the North Tower. The whole event was unreal and surreal. That's that. Let me, and then I'll, I'll skip a little. Before the attacks, a lot of weird stuff happened around where I lived on Greenwich Street. Also true. For a couple of days, several blocks had been shut down to traffic, and guys in hazmat suits had swarmed around doing some sort of drill or reenactment. 
I think that was related to the first bombing. You know, right. there was a lot of response to that. I heard reports from the people in the neighborhood of flashlights shown at the skylights on top floors, police activity on roofs, etc. So the press setting up tents and the National Guard making us show our ID to get home didn't seem particularly odd. What else do I have to say here? Uh, it was about a year of very communal feelings of togetherness in the city afterward. And then as if a switch was pulled, New York City began its ascent or descent to becoming the almost final form of a vast corporate world center. Okay. Yeah. I still like it in New York City. I tried living away in the country for a bunch of years. We came back to the city. Back in the 60s and 70s, I had no idea that I'd come to miss the decay and the danger. Yeah, all that stuff. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, I mean, if I could time travel, I would like to see what the 20s were like in the city, you know. Except I don't know what kind of job I could get. <laughs> in, in the in the twenties in New York, you'd probably you'd probably a bartender or something. Yeah, you probably had, but you might also be a photographer again. Or yeah, uh, no, I mean I'm a big Ouija fan. Yeah, he's a little later too, but still. Yeah, but or you maybe it opened sort of a a, um, a great little bookshop thing. Yeah, or something. something. Who knows? So photo photographer or guitarist, or do you not make that choice? Yeah, no, it's just a certain movements of the same piece and tell me with face it what did debbie get so right in face it i uh, just the tone i think you know it's a lot of stuff i have to keep reading it um i gotta, I gotta read it again i mostly <laughs> just skimmed the, the draft initially i have to sit down and go through the whole thing but uh people seem to be reacting positively to it so that's a nice well, they are. We have a, we have a full, house, full house tonight, and but you know your your relationship is on so many different levels. I mean, you guys, you know, were you know living as a couple. Then you continued to work together even after you yeah. sort of broke up that way. Was what were the challenges to that? Oh, I don't know that there were a hell of a lot, and there wasn't any animosity or anything which just happened you know the relationships of whatever ran its course and but we all know that yeah well, <laughs> we just continued we're still at it you know i've been married now for 20 years and have two teenage daughters so i deal with that and what are they into what are your daughters into uh, my the little one is kind of does a lot of graphics the older one is into boyfriend drama so you know and you live? Do you live in the city? Yeah, right we live now? in Manhattan. Yeah. And so they're in school. They're in high school. They're in school in the city. Yeah. Do you have any real relationship to Miami? Have you spent much time here? No, not no, not a hell of a lot. I've been in London the most, in L.A. more than here. Is there a part of the world that you'd like to photograph, or some yeah, every, some scene that's going yeah, on? No, yeah, sure, in plenty the world. of stuff. Yeah, whatever. Going to Ukraine, whatever the hell. Well, there. That's but you know, but. Um, it's different, you know. I it's getting to me. I'm seventy and all this stuff getting around. It's getting you're seventy. You look, in you look, you in look January, I'm, I'm holding up. <laughs> January seventy. Still you look terrific. Technically sixty nine, which my daughter thinks is the funniest, funniest <laughs> thing in the world. Yeah, I know. Well, someone once said that, you know, you have kids and you have kids and you don't realize that you have kids to mock you. <laughs> 
basically. Yeah. yeah. Their, their youth mocks you all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. No, they're good for that. <laughs> the little one looks like me when I was younger, too, so it's a whole thing. What do you? What kind of music are you listening to these days? Everything, anything. Just, Is there anything, anything new that's really? Yeah, I mean, I really like Billy Eilish. Yeah, and um, you know, I love Beirut, and there's a great. There's still a lot of people maintaining the punk aesthetic. There's a band called Surfboard uh -huh. out of New York who are really entertaining. Um, Amel and the Sniffers and Sunflower Bean and. Uh, Black Lips, just a lot of great bands going all the time, you know. Yeah, but your but your interest is in everything, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, a lot of yeah, and you know, and some of some of the big hits of the last ten years are just some of my favorite pop right. songs of all time, like that Major Lazer song, you know, Lean On. Right. I mean, it's so good, you know. Or titanium, or something like that. I mean, that stuff is as good as anything from the from the classic rock days. And you, we talked a little bit about you know the internet and what that's done, and 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 the connectivity. What do you think that's done for music in, in uh, a sense? For music, or for art, even. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's a little different for graphic art and photography. I think Instagram is great. People get to. You know, put their stuff out there and get an audience. Um, music, it is, you know, I mean, the music scene has changed so much as a result of the internet. Everything is reversed. You know, you used to go on tour to sell, tour to sell the album, <laughs> and now it's, it's vice versa. Right. So, all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, I mean, albums aren't even really viable anymore. Everybody just put that one song right. at a time and. If it sticks to the wall, then it's a then it's there. Otherwise, go on. That kind of stuff. Are you into Are you into sound? Do you listen to stuff analog or the nah, turntable? No, I don't care everything. Whatever, no, you, I, however. Yeah, I just shoot digital photography, and it's, I don't, I don't ascribe to the warmer sound. So, who are some of the photographers that? That you particularly love and now that were now and then also were influenced. Oh, well, the usual suspects, you know, Arbus. Actually, my buddy McGuire, who I mentioned, was right. apprenticed for Diane Arbus briefly, uh, and uh, you know, Brassai and Brisson and Ouija. I'm a really big Ouija fan, Mary Ellen Mark, and uh, uh, Dennis Stock. and you know, and we just lost Robert Frank. Yeah. And all, you know, Gary Winogrand. Winogrand, yeah. All, all the usual, all those usual suspects. Right, right. And most of those were black and white. Well, yes. Yeah. It's just easier. It was easier always. To, especially, you know, if you were – I never developed my own film. I would always send it out. But still, it was faster turnaround yeah. with black and white. Yeah, you could just anyway. do it that way. So today, who who are the, the photographers you look toward? Uh, there's a – one guy on Instagram I just think is the greatest. His name is Clay Benskin, B-E-N-S-K-I-N. Clay uh, Benskin. Yeah, and I hung out with him a few times, and he's like Brazil. He's just of the street photographers. Wow. He's, just, he's this big guy, and he just stays invisible, and nobody knows he's taking their picture. And there, there's other guys on Instagram, but they're, they're all there if you look at my Look at your Instagram. Stuff we you can, can find. link up. Yeah, you can see links. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to do that. That's terrific. What about some of the 
you know, some of the crossover kinds of phot photographers, people who are, his photography is, quote, art. Oh, like, like Roger Ballin? Yeah, yeah Roger Ballin. Roger Ballin's or, great. Or, yeah, Whitkin. Whitkin. Yeah, no, I, I like Sherman. all that stuff. Cindy, Cindy's great. We you know, yeah. met her, and she's a charming person. Um, Nan Golden. Nan, I know. I just saw her recently, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, the, that's where there's been a big shift as yeah. well in – in photography, yeah, there's a great there's a great um, documentary that I'm going to uh, recommend to you. It's called um, The Last Resort, and it it operates on two levels. It's a documentary about old Miami Beach and the old people who lived on. You'll yeah, gr yeah. growing up where you grew up, you'll feel very much at home, even yeah, though it's yeah. Miami Beach. But it also details the lives of these two photographers who photographed all of these older people. One was working in black and white, and one was working in color. And so it has this kind of strange kind of dual dual thing. And you can find it online on Netflix or somewhere called The Last Resort. Last Resort, okay. Well, and it's Andy Sweet and Gary Monroe, two okay. really great photographers. And I uh, I love the fact that it keeps your your Twitter keeps uh, keeps beeping along. So, yeah. <laughs> so make I sure. Feel, yeah, I, I want all of Chris's Twitter followers to make sure they listen to The Literary Life and they find out what's happening here. And uh, we're thrilled to have you at the Miami Book Fair. Thanks. It's nice so to be here. Thanks for being here. Okay. And thanks for all that you've done for all of us. We try hard. All these years. 